Uh, please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. And after reading this passage, we will then turn to Matthew chapter 19. First Matthew 5, verse 31. Christ says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Then Matthew chapter 19 and verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you that whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. You don't have to be a careful observer of American culture to know that the institution of marriage is in trouble in our country. You've probably heard the statistic that 50% of all marriages in the United States end in divorce. Now, I'm pleased to say that that figure is actually mistaken, and it is inflated. <clears throat> that statistic was based on a miscalculation in which the number of divorces in the United States in a given year was compared to the number of marriages in a given year, but it didn't take into account the fact that there were more people in the age bracket in which divorce is most common than there were in the age bracket in which marriage is most common. And when you account for that difference, actually about 40% of marriages in the United States end in divorce, but that's still an alarming statistic, isn't it? Four out of every 10. Now, you may have heard that the marriage rate in the United States is declining, but don't get too excited about that. The only reason that the numbers in divorces are dropping is because the number of marriages are decreasing. And many people have opted for cohabitation, living together out of wedlock rather than marrying. And so a breakup does not necessitate a divorce. 
So the sad fact is that the decline in the number of divorces in American culture in an odd way is actually further evidence of the collapse of the institution of marriage in our culture. What's the Christian view of marriage, divorce, and remarriage? What did the Lord Jesus himself teach about these very important topics? Well, Jesus' clearest teaching about these issues appears in Matthew chapter 5 and in Matthew chapter 19. And the first truth that he reveals is that Christians should not be influenced by a culture that has a low view of marriage. I've argued throughout our study of Matthew chapter 5 that the Lord Jesus never contradicts the Old Testament in these so-called antitheses. He's already said, I did not come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Jesus is not contradicting the Old Testament at any point in his sermon, but he is challenging the faulty interpretation of many of the rabbis of his day on each of these issues. You might remember that the full formula that introduces each of these antitheses is, you have heard that it was said to the ancients. And even when the Lord Jesus uses a shortened form of the formula for brevity's sake, as he does here in verse 31, the full formula is still being implied. And remember, that means that the knowledge of the Old Testament that the average first century Jew had was one that was mediated to them through the teaching of the rabbis. And when it came to the issues of marriage, divorce, and remarriage, they got it all wrong. And that's abundantly clear in Matthew chapter 19. The Pharisees approach the Lord Jesus. They lay a trap for him. And say, Moses said that a man should write out a certificate of divorce in order to divorce his wife. What do you think about that? May a man divorce his wife for any cause? Now, unfortunately, when we read that in our English translations, we seem to think that the Pharisees are asking, is there even a single ground in all of the world that would justify divorce? But that's not what the question means. The adjective that is used here means any and every or any at all. And what the Pharisees are asking is, is any conceivable grounds proper justification for divorce. Josephus makes this clear in his antiquities when he teaches that the Pharisees, and Josephus had once belonged to the sect of the Pharisees, taught that divorce was permitted for any causes whatsoever. In other words, long before the United States of America had a no-fault divorce, first century Jews did. They believed that any old reason in all the world justified divorce. And that's clear when we start to study the Mishnah. The Mishnah is a collection of the teaching of the rabbis that was written down in AD 200, but reflects traditions that go all the way back to the time of the Lord Jesus. And the Mishnah list 
ground after ground after ground for divorce from the teaching of the Pharisees. Now, there were two major schools among the Pharisees regarding the divorce in this day. The school of Hillel, which was very permissive, and it allowed divorce for any reason whatsoever. But the other school was the school of Shammai, which held to a strict interpretation of the Old Testament law and permitted divorce only for the innocent spouse when the other spouse had been unfaithful. Unfortunately, the school of Hillel won the day. And most first century Jews believed that divorce was justifiable for any reason whatsoever. For example, the Mishnah teaches that there were domestic grounds for divorce. If your wife couldn't bear children, it was grounds for divorce. If she lost her hearing, if she lost her ability to speak, there were certain chores that she had to perform every single day or it was grounds for divorce. And the rabbis listed the chores. She had to grind flour, bake bread, wash clothes, cook the meals, nurse the children, make the bed, and weave fabric at the loom <coughs> in order to make clothes. Now, the rabbis were so generous that they said if she brings a certain number of slaves into the marriage, then she can knock a few of these chores off of the list. If she brings four slaves into the marriage, she can sit in a chair all day long with her feet propped up, but her husband can still divorce her if he feels that she is lazy. There are also certain physical defects that the rabbis taught were grounds for divorce. The rabbis argued that any physical defect that disqualified a man from serving as high priest under Old Testament law was sufficient physical defect in a woman to serve as grounds for divorce. And based on that ruling, they said, and I'm not making this up, you could divorce your wife if she had a head, a head that was wedged-shaped, turnip-shaped, or hammer-shaped, you could divorce her if she had a face that was sunk in or a head that was flat in the back. You could divorce her if she had poor posture, if she had thinning hair, if she had no eyebrows, only one eyebrow, unibrow, or bushy eyebrows. You could divorce her if she had a bug nose, if she had eyes that were too high or too low on her face, if she were cross-eyed, if she had eyes of two different colors, if she had watery eyes, if she had eyes as big as a calf or as small as a goose. You could divorce your wife if she had a nose that was too big or too little, if she had ears that were too small or too floppy. You could divorce her if she had an overbite or an underbite, or if she were missing teeth. And remember, there were no fluoride toothpaste in the ancient world, so by the time a lady reaches the age of 50, she's missing at least a few of the old chompers. You could divorce your wife if she had a poor figure, if she had a swollen belly, if she had an outie belly button. You've never heard that from the pulpit before, have you? You could divorce your wife if she had a dark complexion, if she had bony ankles or knees, if she were bow-legged, if she had swollen feet, 
or if she were ambidextrous. And there's more. I'm abbreviating for the sake of time. There are also social grounds that the rabbis taught justified divorce. You could divorce your wife if she ate something you told her not to eat. You save those potato chips for me, baby. <laughs> you could divorce her if she visited the home of her parents or if the in-laws moved into town to be near their daughter. You could divorce your wife if she broke any of the 613 commandments of the laws of Moses, or if she transgressed Jewish custom by doing something like going out of doors without her hair covered with the veil. You could divorce your wife if she cursed your parents, or if she raised her voice at the husband enough that the voice could be heard in the street. And remember, there are no insulation in the ancient homes, no glass panes on the windows, no sealed doors. Rabbis also taught that you could divorce your wife if she did not offer conjugal relations frequently enough. And they specified that it had to be every single day for a man that had the time. Every conceivable ground for divorce was permitted by the rabbis under Hillel's influence. Why is that important to know? Well, every now and then I encounter a person who says, well, I know Jesus' teaching on divorce and remarriage was strict, but after all, he lived back then when divorce was so very, very uncommon. If he had lived in our day, he would have been much more lax and lenient regarding these issues. No, first century Jewish culture was far more permissive with divorce and remarriage than even 21st century American culture is. And yet Christ was firm. He held to the Old Testament standard that permitted divorce when one of the spouses had been unfaithful, but not for these frivolous causes that the rabbis attempted to justify. In other words, Christ's teaching was counter-cultural. It was contrary to the prevailing opinions of his day. Because culture has never been qualified to make moral decisions for the people of God. We cannot allow our surrounding culture to define our view of sexual relationships, of marriage, divorce, and remarriage, our view must be grounded in the teaching of the Word of God. Second, Christ urges to not play word games with the Bible in order to justify breaking our marital covenant. Jesus teaches that divorce and remarriage are sinful except in cases where a spouse was engaged in sexual immorality and refused to repent. How is it that the rabbis held such a vastly different view when both of them were reading the same Bible? Well, the ancient debate is based primarily on an interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 24. You might want to take a look at that. 
Deuteronomy 24 says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if he then finds, if she then finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and so forth. Now, most of the rabbis in Jesus' day focused on that first clause, if she then finds no favor in his eyes. And based on that clause, they said, anything that a man dislikes about his wife is grounds for divorce. They actually argued that if a wife ever burned the husband's supper, it was grounds for divorce. They actually argued that if a man just saw another woman that he thought was prettier than his wife, it was grounds for divorce. They put all of that under that category of her finding no favor in his eyes. But you'll notice that they're wresting that clause from its context. The Old Testament was clear. She finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And the word indecency refers clearly to sexual immorality. In the Greek text of Matthew 5, Christ uses the word porneia, which speaks of sexual immorality in many different forms, primarily including adultery. Christ is accurately interpreting Deuteronomy 24 with sensitivity to its original context, but the rabbis were snatching one little phrase out of the Old Testament to justify divorce for practically any reason. What Christ is showing us through his careful interpretation of the Old Testament is we can't play word games with the Word of God. We can't twist it, distort it, and pervert it to make it say what we want it to say. I gave an example of that a couple of weeks ago, you may remember. A Sunday school teacher, ordained chaplain, seminary graduate, had decided that he was going to leave his wife and children for a relationship with another woman. The pastor confronted him and said, this is wrong, this is sinful, this is breaking covenant with your wife made before a holy God. And his retort was, the Bible says, I came that you might have joy and that your joy might be full. And he said, this other woman makes me happy, but my wife doesn't make me happy. God wants me to be happy. He was snatching a text out of its original context, perverting it to make it say what he wanted it to say. People have all kinds of ways of rationalizing and justifying sin. Christ says, do not fall prey to those arguments. I'm afraid that our culture is one that values happiness above everything else. And men will pursue any relationship that they think might guarantee their happiness. But guess what? God is far more concerned about our holiness than he is about our happiness. And the people of God are called to obey the holy scriptures, 
not just when it's convenient, not just when it's fun, but even when it's difficult. Because we stood before a holy God and we vowed in sickness as in health, in poverty as in wealth, in the bad that may darken your days, in the good that may light your ways, I will be true to you in all things as long as we both shall live. And God expects us to fulfill that covenant. Third, Christ argued that the true nature of marriage is understood when we go back to creation and not merely an examination of the Old Testament commandments. Now, I believe that when the Pharisees tried to entrap Jesus with this question, is it permissible to divorce your wife for just any old reason whatsoever, they expected Christ to jump back to Deuteronomy 24 and argue from it. And they were all prepared to focus on that first clause, she finds no favor in his eyes, ignoring the causal clause because he finds indecency in her. But Christ catches them off guard by leaping way before Deuteronomy 24 all the way back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. He says in Matthew 19, in the beginning, it was not so. He says, verse 4, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And then you'll notice that phrase, the beginning occurs again. In verse 8, from the beginning, it was not so. And what Christ is saying is if you really want to understand God's ideal for marital relationships, don't look at the prescriptions of the Old Testament law, but turn back the clock and look at the creation ordinance. And what you will find there is that number one, God made them male and female. That is, heterosexual union was part of his design for humanity in the first place. God created the genders to complement and to complete one another. And the original command that instituted marriage was Genesis 2, 23 through 25. Eve was taken from Adam's side, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. And what Christ is going to argue that is that it's only when the woman is returned to man's side that he becomes whole and complete again. The one, Adam, became two, Adam and Eve, so that they might become one again. God said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. <coughs> the verb translated hold fast, or in the King James, cleave, is a powerful verb. In one Old Testament passage, 2 Samuel 23.10, it referred to someone holding so tightly to something so long that they literally couldn't let it go. 
It refers to an Israelite warrior who swung his sword on the battlefield all day long. And at the end of the battle, his hand clave to the sword. I understand this. When I was a boy splitting firewood, sometimes all day long, at the end of the day, my fingers were cramped around the axe handle and literally had to be pried off to release that axe. And that's the image that Christ has in mind here. The man is to cleave to his wife. He is to hold on so tight, so long, that he cannot let her go. This is also a verb that was used to speak of an ancient weld where under superheat, two pieces of metal were fused together so that the two became one. And in the technology of the day, a weld was the strongest bond conceivable. We see a description of it in Job 41, 17 through 23, where the weld is joined one to another, quote, so closely connected that they cannot be separated, solid as metal and immovable. That's the imagery that Yahweh in the creation ordinance used to describe the union of husband and wife. The union is so deep and so profound that the two become one. Marriage is created to be an inseparable union, not a temporary union of convenience, but an inseparable union that can be divided only honorably in the sight of God by physical death. Christ says, in light of this creation ordinance, what God has joined together, let not man separate. God in the creation ordinance defines man and wife as one flesh. And when we separate man and wife, we are actually attacking what God has created and ordained. Now, Christ goes on to say twice in Matthew, both Matthew 5 and here in Matthew 19, that if someone divorces the wife on grounds of her sexual immorality, that that is not sinful. That was clear in Deuteronomy 24. It's clear in Matthew 5. It's clear in Matthew 19. If someone's spouse is unfaithful to them, and refuses to repent and break off that relationship, then it is grounds for divorce in both the Old Testament and New. And the divorce and remarriage of the innocent spouse is not sinful. I'm afraid that the church has not handled that very faithfully. Our old Protestant confessions like the Westminster Confession handle this very responsibly. But unfortunately, in more recent Protestant life, we've not handled it as well. And we heap guilt upon victims of infidelity. Sometimes counselors have said things like, well, Adultery is not the cause of a broken marriage. It's a symptom of one and things like that, which only heaps guilt on the victim, the innocent spouse. 
who was not responsible for the sinful choices of the cheater. Christ does not sentence someone whose spouse is unfaithful to a life of tolerating that continual betrayal, but permits the divorce and remarriage of the innocent party. And yet he draws the line there. 1 Corinthians 7 will specify another ground for divorce, which is very, very rare. Christ mentions only this one. He actually says that if someone divorces and remarries without biblical grounds, that that second marriage constitutes an act of adultery. Why? Because God ordained that marriage. God declared the two to be one. And Christ's argument is just a little piece of paper, a certificate of divorce, cannot nullify what God created. Unless there has been adultery, the original marriage is still in effect, despite what that certificate of divorce might say. So that if one without biblical grounds remarries, that remarriage and the consummation of it is an act of adultery in the eyes of God. Then Christ goes on to show us that God's allowance for divorce was temporary and provisional, not an expression of his ideal. I pointed out before that in Matthew 19, Christ focuses our attention on the beginning. Looking beyond the commandment in Deuteronomy 24 and going back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Why is that so important? It's because those who are followers of Jesus Christ have gone back to the beginning in their spiritual lives. What do I mean by that? Well, the Pharisees say, how can you prohibit divorce without, uh, with the ex only exception of sexual immorality when, quote, verse 7, Moses commanded one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Do you see what they've done? They are acting as if Moses ordered divorce. He never does. Christ corrects them. He says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed, uh, we could translate it, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. What Christ is saying is marriage was one thing in the beginning, but after the sin of Adam and Eve, the relationship changed, and that is what brought about the need to grant permission for divorce. What was it that changed? <laughs> well, when sin came into the world, it drastically altered the relationship between husband and wife. It ruined the affection between them. Genesis 3.16 says as part of the curse, quote, Eve, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. 
And the idea is that Eve was looking for affection, tenderness, love, and compassion from Adam. But instead, he ruled over her with an iron fist. That's not the way it was in the beginning. But that is the way things turned out as a consequence of sin and the fall. But remember, Christ came not only to forgive our sins, he came to transform the believer and make God's people like humanity was in the beginning. Do you remember Matthew 1.1, very first sermon that we looked at in this study through Matthew? We saw that although most translations title Matthew the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham, the actual title is Biblos Ganesa O Jesu Christu. Remember what Biblos Ganesa O's meant? Book of... I heard somebody say it. Book of Genesis. Matthew titles his gospel a book of Genesis. Why? Because Christ is the creator who has come into the world to perform the miracle of new creation, to perform a new Genesis. We're actually going to see that again here in Matthew chapter 19. Christ will refer to his messianic reign as the Pauline Genesia, which means the new beginning, the new Genesis. Christ came to make all things new. And this dovetails with Jesus' fulfillment of the new covenant. <clears throat> Why is it that Jesus' miracle of new creation will make marriages whole? Well, look at what causes the problem in a marriage. Verse 8, Moses allowed for divorce because of your what? Hardness of heart. Remember, the Lord Jesus came to fulfill the promise of the new covenant in texts like Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. Do you remember those new covenant promises? God said, I will give you a new heart I will take away your heart of stone, a hard heart, and I will give you a heart of flesh, a heart that is sensitive, that is compassionate, that is tender. And then he goes on to say, I will put my spirit in your heart, and my spirit will cause you to keep my commandments and fulfill my ordinances. And the point is... When we believe in Jesus as God's Savior and King, He not only forgives our sins, He changes our hearts so that we are now capable of loving our wives or our husbands like they ought to be loved. We are capable of having a marriage that looks more like what Adam and Eve enjoyed in the Garden of Eden rather than after sin entered the world and they were banished from the Garden. We can have marriages that look a lot more like paradise than like the hell of so many modern marriages these days because of the transforming power of Jesus Christ. After all, what's the ground for divorce? 
Christ says it's adultery. Well, what is it that leads to adultery? Matthew 15, 19, Christ said, from the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, blasphemies. The adultery that would lead to divorce arises from a wicked heart. But how does Christ describe his disciples in the Beatitudes? He says, blessed are the pure in heart. How can the hearts of Jesus' disciples be described as pure when he's described the inherent depravity of fallen human beings so clearly in Matthew 15? It is because their hearts have been transformed by the power of Jesus Christ in fulfillment of the new covenant and in the miracle of new creation. Now, this side of eternity, our marriages will not be perfect but they can be a whole lot better than the average marriage because the more a man loves Christ, the better he'll love his wife. And the more a wife loves Christ, the better she will love her husband. When our marriage is a Christian marriage, the husband learns to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And the wife learns to submit to the leadership of her husband, even as she submits to the leadership of her Lord. In Christ, marriages can be characterized by harmony and unity and sacrificial love. That's God's ideal. You know, it's often claimed these days that there's no difference in the divorce rate for Christians and non-Christians. What an indictment on the church. But actually, that's not true. That statistic is based on a misdefinition of a Christian. Those surveys assume that anybody who claims to be a Christian is. But if you follow up, and I hope everybody knows different. Everybody should know better than that. But if you follow up with some other important questions like, what do you believe about the Scripture? What do you believe about the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you committed to the study of God's Word and to faithful worship in the church and so forth? If you start asking more probing questions that really help you correctly assess a person's spiritual state, you see a very different picture. Yes, nominal Christians are just as likely, perhaps even more so, to be divorced than non-Christians. But if you're talking about actual Bible-believing Christians who have trusted Jesus as God, Savior, and King and have devoted their lives to His service, they are 35% less likely to divorce. Why the drastic difference? It's because Christ changes relationships, because Christ changes people. And suddenly, a husband is able to quit loving selfishly and start loving sacrificially. A wife is able to be fully devoted to her husband as an expression of her devotion to her Lord. Only Christ can do that. And that's why it is so crucial for our families 
to love and honor Jesus Christ, to come under the study of the Holy Scriptures, and to be faithfully involved in the worship of the church. But we can't end things here. I know that there are many people in this room who have been affected by divorce and who still grieve over it. I visited with a man just a few days ago who sobbed and sobbed over the breakup of his marriage that was no fault of his own, though it had occurred years and years ago. And the last thing that I want is for you to walk away from this room feeling beaten up as if you've had guilt heaped on you. We must clearly affirm what the Lord Jesus teaches about divorce and remarriage and about Christian marriage. But make no mistake, we serve a Savior who can forgive the most heinous of sins. I'm afraid that the church has sometimes misunderstood the Lord's teaching on those matters and has been harsh and sometimes even cruel in response to these teachings. There's one denomination, for example, who will not allow anyone who has been divorced and remarried to join the church. Uh, if you join that church, you have to divorce your second spouse and return to the first. Uh, otherwise, you're not allowed to join, or if you're already a member, you're churched, you're excluded from the fellowship and an act of church discipline. I, I think that is tragically mistaken. For one reason, yes, remarriage after a divorce that did not have biblical grounds constitutes an act of adultery, but I do not believe it is a perpetual adultery. The first union in that second marriage is an adulterous act that breaks the one flesh relationship with the first spouse. But thereafter, God wants that marriage to be preserved, protected, and honored despite its sinful origins. God can hallow that marriage and God can use it for his glory. It's clear to me that the Lord Jesus loved people who had been through divorce and was eager to grant them forgiveness and restoration even when the divorce had no biblical grounds. And the clearest example of that is John chapter 4, where Jesus goes of all places to Samaria, a place not visited by faithful first century Jews, so that he can meet that woman at the well at noon. He begins a spiritual discussion with her, and she attempts to conceal her faithful past. Christ says, go get your husband and bring him to me. And she says, I have no husband. And she calls her hand. He says, you have had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. Christ, what does Christ do? Does he treat her like chattel? 
Does he cast her aside like she's some piece of garbage that has no use for the kingdom? No, Christ offers her the living water, the gift of the Holy Spirit who can transform her from the inside out and grant her the promise of eternal life. That woman becomes a witness to her Samaritan community. They flock to hear the Lord Jesus, and then they exclaim that Jesus truly is the Savior of the world. And what they mean by Savior of the world is not just the Savior of Samaritans as well as Jews, but the Savior of people who have been divorced five times without biblical grounds and are now living with someone out of wedlock, they can be forgiven and transformed too. Now let me be clear. When this woman is converted, you can be certain that she, quote, goes and sins no more. That she either breaks off her relationship with this man that she's cohabitating with, or they are married under the law. But Christ is clear in his expression of grace and compassion to this divorcee, even this serial divorcee, and offers full forgiveness to the repentant. And so everyone in this place should leave today with the challenge, if you're a husband, to love your wife like Christ loved the church. If you're a wife, to follow your husband's leadership and be devoted to him as an expression of your devotion to the Lord, to seek to have a marriage that turns back the clock from east of Eden to Eden itself, have a marriage that reflects the fact that we have been renewed in knowledge in the image of our Creator, and the damage that was done by the fall is being undone through the transforming power of the gospel, so that we're no longer characterized by hard hearts but by tender hearts that can love our husbands or our wives like they deserve to be loved. And if you're someone in this room today who has been through divorce and remarriage, even without biblical grounds, then you can be assured that we serve a Savior who is kind and gracious and forgiving. And you do not have to live the rest of your married days with guilt and regret. You can be confident that Christ in his grace redeems your relationship with your husband or wife even now. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Some of you are probably thinking that you walked into this room and there's trouble in the relationship between you and your spouse. Uh, sometimes the problem is deeper than you think. Sometimes the problem is your relationship with the Lord. Because when you get your relationship with the Lord right, many other relationships will fall into place. Have you trusted Jesus as your God, your Savior, and your King? Are you worshiping Him as Almighty God, the Son of God in human form? 
Do you believe that he is the one who died on the cross for your sins in your place so that you can be forgiven? Do you believe that he was raised from the dead to unleash the life-transforming power of his Holy Spirit and make you a new and different person? And have you submitted to Jesus' authority as the king of your life, yielding your life to his mastery and control? If not, do so now, not only for the sake of your soul, but for the sake of your marriage. And you will be surprised at how your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ can impact your relationship with your husband or your wife. Dear Father, we commit this invitation to you. We pray that the teaching of Holy Scripture has been made clear. We pray that any who have not repented and believed will be moved by your convicting spirit to make that commitment right now. And we pray that we will have Christian marriages that exemplify the truths of the gospel, the submission of the believer to your authority, and the sacrificial love of our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.